My name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I knew he was coming in a few days, so I started thinking about my eyesight. I was about to interview an internationally recognized doctor who had operated on more eyes than cups of coffee I'd ever drink in my lifetime. No small feat. In all seriousness, I thought about what my life would be like without eyesight. How would I work? How would I run? How would I communicate? How would I go to drinks with friends? In today's world, I don't know how I'd do any of these things if I were, God forbid, to lose my eyesight at 28. Enter Morris Hartstein. He's not only a doctor, and he's certainly not just a singular eunuch. He created something, not with his colleagues, but with his family. Something that took on a life of its own and took his family to the far corners of the world, far, far from home, yet so close to the lessons taught in Morris and his wife's home in Renana, Israel. This is my conversation with Dr. Morris Hartstein. Tell me about the moment as a child when you kind of realized you wanted to be a doctor. Well, my father was a doctor. He was, all, he was an eye doctor. So I grew up seeing him in the profession. And to him, it wasn't just a job. It was basically his lifetime calling 24-7. And I grew up in St. Louis and uh, everybody knew him. And when I got married, my wife was shocked. Like the FedEx guy would come and he'd say, oh, Hartstein, is that Jack Hartstein? You know that. So uh it was a real calling, so I, I think that definitely had an effect on me. But I was also really into scientific research and chemistry, and I worked in a lab one summer for a pediatric surgeon. And then I hung out with her also in the hospital on rounds, and I just, it might sound cliched, but I saw kind of, you know, the hybrid of doing science but working with people and doing surgery, which is very exciting to me. So I think all that came together you know, and led me to the path of being a doctor. When did you move to Israel and when did your medical kind of education fit into that journey? I did all my education in, in the States, went to Einstein Medical School, then I was at Bellevue for my residency, then I was at Mass Ionier, part of the Harvard system, and Tufts for my, I subspecialized after ophthalmology and oculoplastic surgery, it's called. Wow. But then after that, we moved to St. Louis, and I had a position at St. Louis University. And I, I spent, uh, I'd been to Israel a lot and spent a gap year here. And, you know, I was definitely a big Zionist. My parents were, too. I was working in St. Louis, and after the birth of our last child in uh, 2003, uh, you know, we were fairly established in our careers, but my wife, especially my wife, we just felt like we needed a change. We needed to change direction. So I had the opportunity to come here for a sabbatical year. They were very accommodating at the university, and I found a position at a Safarofa, and we just said, you know, let's just go for a year. And we really, I mean, again, we 
had both been to Israel a lot. My wife and I, we, you know, loved Israel a lot, but we really just came for the year and we left our house. Felt it was, you know, we had four kids in a short time and we were both working very hard. So this was an opportunity to kind of like reassess. And so we had this opportunity to come here and we came. And I think it helped us because we didn't come on Aliyah. So other families that came with us, you know, when sometimes there's bureaucratic things, as you know, that never, happen here, right? Never. So uh, when those would happen, everybody else would be, oh my God, what have we done? And we're like, hey, it's just fun. We're here for the year, having a yeah, great yeah. time. Shortly after we got here, we just felt the energy here and our kids were really happy. They were, our oldest was only in first grade. They were so happy and then we knew that we had to make a change. And then during the course of the year, we decided to stay a second year and then a third year. And now here we are 18 years later. That was in 2004. Wow. What's the feeling like of the tide of life pushing you and the gravitational pull just pushing your family to be here, even though, you know, you said, okay, we have one year. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you realize that it's not really up to you or, or, or your wife or anyone. It's just kind of life is happening and moving and roots are being set. Like, what's that feeling like? Right. I, I think we felt the gravitational pull the other way. You know, we had a house, we both had good jobs and kids were in school, but, you know, we felt there was like, you know, we had a great community also with great friends, but we felt there was kind of more to life than our day-to-day just working and picking up the kids. And so I think, I think that was a gravitational pull. And then when we got here, we just felt this energy day-to-day that we didn't feel there. And, and we just felt a lot even more alive in body and spirit. And, and I think that's what, you know, and of course we did have the, you know, Zionism always angle. We'd been here a lot, but I think it was that energy that made us go against kind of the traditional gravitational pull. Yeah. You know? So then we just knew we, you know, wanted to stay and somehow make it work. And we felt so fulfilled. We weren't worrying about the big picture. It was more like the little picture, whereas in the States, uh, the little things, it's very convenient to live there, but you know, the big picture wasn't so clear to us. I just can't imagine someone moving to this country without WhatsApp. (laughs) (laughs) 2003 versus, I mean, it's almost 20 years ago. Right. You know, how different was life here as an American family or just as an individual or in in the macro level as a state? Like, what differences strike you when you look back to that time and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we... Yeah, no, it's, it's hard because I always recall, because I'm older, I always recall when I was here, like for my gap year, and not everybody had a phone in their house, even back then. And that, that wasn't, it wasn't in the 50s, that was in the early 80s. You know, I was in a yeshiva where there was one phone for 500 <laughs> guys, and somebody would call, and you'd have to call them back. So I always remember those days. And when we came here, uh, actually, we came to a rented house that already, you know, somebody had just left, so the internet was set up. So that was, we were like, oh, my God, there's, you know, Never internet, <laughs> email. So we weren't thinking about WhatsApp then, and that was amazing. And WhatsApp, obviously, has been great. My daughter is in Paris right now after an army trip, and, you know, she's sending us pictures, and we're talking, and she went to the Eiffel Tower, and I remember when I traveled through Europe after medical school uh, and when I was in Israel I had a friend we were traveling with and we split up at one point and we said we'll meet at the Eiffel Tower on Tuesday at four or whatever and you know there was no phones there's no email or anything and somehow we met up and amazing like without cell phones without WhatsApp and you know we just made a plan and so it's amazing we survived without it. So you're a doctor and professor in Israel you go on a family trip And then from there, you're kind of not in the driver's seat because 
it just spirals into something that's a lot bigger than just one person and a lot bigger than a job. Tell us the story of how your life took a turn. In 2014, we were planning, you know, every, our kids were still young and every summer we'd either go back to the U.S. or go on vacation. So we started thinking about vacation and very soon our 12-year-old son, Zach, who was 12 at the time, he said, you know, he wants to do a volunteer trip, not like the usual vacation. And, and all the other kids, you know, who were the oldest was 16 at the time or 15, uh, they all jumped on board and they're like, yeah, we want to do a volunteer trip. So we looked around and so we took them seriously. We're like, okay, we're not going to go to wherever we were going to go. And we started searching, but I didn't know where to begin. And we had it in our minds a little, maybe just because Israel has this kind of Ethiopia connection. So we thought about that, but we looked online and really months went by and we couldn't either find anything or we find things where they needed. They're like, oh, you pay the $10,000 non-refundable registration fee. <laughs> and, and so we just couldn't find anything. And at the time, I didn't know that there were still Jews in Ethiopia. I didn't really follow that story at all, but we had, I had remembered that they had kind of done the last airlift a year before. There was an Ethiopian Jew who came to Israel and he was trying to earn some money and he, some friends of ours had him over at their house and he made an Ethiopian dinner for everybody to, you know, get some money while he was looking for a job. So I remembered I was at that dinner and so I called him and I said, is there anything we can do as a family in Ethiopia? We're just, we're looking to volunteer. And he didn't laugh at me and he said, oh, you should call Avraham Nagusi, who at the time was a Knesset member, but I didn't know who he was. He gave me his number and I called him up. You know, I thought he'd laugh at me. And I said, ah, there's Morris, we want to go to Ethiopia. He goes, oh, you know, there's still a lot of Jews there. You can go and volunteer. Call this other guy, Rob Waldman, who's like this, been the spiritual leader of the community. So I called him cold again and said, we want to go volunteer in Ethiopia. And he said, great, I'm coming over tomorrow. He lives in Haifa and we live in Renana. And he came over our house the next day and he said, there's still many Jews here waiting to make Aliyah, like thousands. And he said, you can go and give them moral support. You can teach them Hebrew, sing songs, kind of like camp. So he said, great, you know, we have a plan. And so we got our tickets. And then in the summer of 2014, it was right after the Gaza war, because at the time the war was going on, I technically wasn't allowed to leave the country from the hospital. But the day the war ended, I asked the head of the hospital, and they said, yeah, now you can go on vacation or wherever. So then we, we went to Gondar. We met up with somebody there, and then he took us to the Jewish community. And then we, we do, you know, I, I play guitar, so we sang some songs, and we taught them some dances. Our kids have been, you know, to camp here, and so we kind of recycled a lot of their camp activities. And we brought bubbles and games, but you know, quickly it was a little overwhelming because hundreds of kids are, if you bring bubbles, you gotta bring enough for everybody. It's a good rule. But anyway, I didn't tell anybody I was an eye doctor because I, I never been to the third world, never been there. And I, did, I just wanted to stay with the family. I wanted to be like just a Israeli American citizen, but our guy knew that I was an eye doctor. He said, hey, can you just take a look at this kid, you know, and see what you think. So I looked at him and I don't even remember what he had. And then they have a break every day. And then they actually, they daven three times a day. So we- Wow, we, in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, in Gondor. Wow. They have like a shul and it's kind of like a matnas here, a community center, but they also daven. And so we went back to our, you know, hotel, youth hostel, where there's like no running water and bed bugs and everything. And uh, we came back from Mincha and there were like hundreds of people there. And I said to the guide, wow, that's an amazing turnout for, Min <laughs> for Mincha. So he said, oh, they're not here for Mincha. They're here for you to check their eyes. 
you know, because they heard there was an eye doctor. I don't know how word spread fast. Talk about WhatsApp. This, they didn't even have, you know, Nokia. So they had no cell phones, obviously no fax or I don't know how word spread, but it spread and they were all there. So uh, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, well, I didn't bring anything. I had a flashlight with me. And so I examined all of them after the services, like hundreds, you know, and the kids, everybody stayed, you know. And uh, so I looked at them all, but I had nothing to offer them. I didn't have any medications. There was a hospital there, but I didn't even know where it was. And so I was like, well, you know, you need to go see a doctor. You need this. And and that was that. But they all waited patiently in line, even though, you know, they sighed in no treatment. But I think just many of them had never seen a doctor. And those who had hadn't seen one in years. But that was it. And we went from there to Addis. We did some more volunteering. And then we came back to Israel. And it was a great trip. But that was it. You know, it was kind of a one-off we put pictures on Facebook then and uh, before Instagram or <laughs> before it was big. And then we really didn't have any plans to go back. But, you know, as my wife likes to say, once you're uh, exposed to like that level, you know, of poverty, you know, these are people that live in mud huts where there's no running water, there's no electricity. You know, you see, you say, oh, that's the kid with the red shirt because they have one pair of clothes and uh, you come back every year and you'll see them in that same shirt. You know, it's hard to see that and not feel changed. Shortly after that, we all spoke in our shul after, you know, services one Saturday. Just we felt we had to tell people this other world that's going on out there. Other Jewish world in the Other Jewish world. the assumption is, like, you know, you said, most people think, oh, there really aren't any Jews or any right. community in, in Ethiopia. Right. So that was all news to us. And also just the way they live, the, you know, abject poverty, which I had never been exposed to up close like that, you know, and I did my, I was an intern at Bellevue and, and I certainly worked in, in inner city places. But so again, we didn't have any plans, but uh, literally a year later around the Chagim, we just said, you know, we have to go back there and do something. And we, uh, we said this time, we're not going to sing songs and do things. It was fun. It was also a little stressful, you know, with the hundreds of kids. So we said, this time we'll go back and why don't we do the eye exams the way it should be? So this time we brought equipment. At the time, we had to purchase everything ourselves, and we bought, you know, eye drops, had some donations. We bought glasses, and it turns out at the time, Kofix, if they're kind of still around, uh, when they sold everything for five shekels, they also had five shekel reading glasses. And so there was a Super Kofix and Renata, and so every few days, one of my kids would go and just buy all their reading glasses, just like empty their inventory, because... <laughs> Other places for 15 shekel, 20, but five was a deal. So we, so we went with all those. We went back with the whole family again. And then we set up in the uh, Jewish compound in the, where they daven. And then, and this time we saw hundreds of people and we had what to offer them. You know, we gave them drops, we gave them glasses. A lot of them weren't aware that they couldn't see because they just needed glasses. And it was like a miracle. Even people who were illiterate, which there are many, uh, you know, they could see to do close work and they could see their family. And right. so it's just traumatic. You put on a pair of glasses and they're like, oh, my God. And then at that point, I also made contact with the local hospital. The hospital, it turns out, is it was across the street from our hotel or hostel, about half a kilometer or so from the Jewish area. It was very close. And I said, OK, here, I'm a doctor. I'm willing to offer my services. So I gave some lectures and then, and, and from then things just kind of grew and then we kept going back. And again, was, this was all just our family kind of grassroots. We started going back on a regular basis. How old were your kids when you first went? Right. So we first went, our kids were 11, 12, like 14 and 16, something like that. Very young to see Very that young. intensity and that 
poverty and that. Yeah. And each time we kind of went deeper, the second, third time we would go, you know, we kind of just stayed in the Jewish community center or compound, but then we started going visiting people's houses and then visiting the hospital. And, you know, we just kind of got in deeper and deeper. And so I, every time I, I, I've been there 13 times and I, I think I've gone once or twice by myself. It's always been with all the family or some of the, some parts of the family. We had kids in the army, so they couldn't always come. And one of my daughters, when she finished high school, they have a summer camp. The first thing she did, she went with a friend and worked in the summer camp there. In Ethiopia. In Ethiopia by herself. And, Were you uh, nervous? I mean. Yeah. And this was also before there was no cell phone coverage there. So when she went there, I was kind of, except when there was occasional Wi-Fi, which, you know, was at 2 a.m. and a certain spot, you know, in the hotel, you know, we didn't have much contact with her. And uh, yeah, we were definitely nervous. But again, we had somebody there who looked after her. And I was just impressed with her dedication to Absolutely. go. And my two sons, just by virtue of their dedication to doing it, but also because they're available and not in the army, they, they've been, one of them's been maybe eight times, the other's been five or six. So we just started going back a lot and doing these mobile clinics. And then also I was working in the hospital and then pretty soon in the, the area of Gondar, so to speak, you know, they heard, you know, about, you know, these, they call Ferengis or white people coming in and doing these exams. So, well, can you come and do it in another village, not just for the Jewish people? And we said, sure. So we would go out to these neighboring villages in Gondar in the same situation, people who'd never seen doctors. And I think one uh, one thing we do that's special, we can go to the Shetach, as it were, and set up and just see people because there's only 200 eye doctors, ophthalmologists in all of Ethiopia, 110 million people. So most people, it's not like a convenience, oh, you're coming to their village. They otherwise have no access at all to eye care. So we go to them and we set up, We a few months ago, we went and they set us up in like what was like a storage bin for grain. And that was the only place they had. And, but we can really set up anywhere and examine. We just bring a suitcase full of our stuff and do eye exams. So now we're, we always take care of the Jewish community because that was how we started. But probably more of our activity now is with non-Jews. So... If you were to take a guess of since the first trip to the most recent one, how many patients did you and, and your team and family kind of see while you were there? Right. So it, it's a guess. But, you know, we, we've always, you know, every time my son says, oh, we got to bring an iPad and write everything down and keep track. And we try. But, you know, you get there and you just get overwhelmed by the crowds. But we generally keep track. And I think we personally examined uh, 7,000 people ourselves, you know, and treated them. And that's given out probably thousands of pairs of glasses, thousands of eye drops. And then we also, one of the leading cause of blindness in Ethiopia is cataracts and not cataracts like in Israel, the US where, you know, somebody can't see the second line from the bottom on the chart. These people yeah. are, are blind, like completely blind. So that's the leading cause. And again, people have very little access to uh, have surgery. So we started setting up cataract campaigns where, again, instead of the patients coming to the hospital, we go to a remote village and we set up an operating room in the village. If they have a mini hospital, we use it. We can do it in a school or anywhere. I do that in conjunction with the Gondor University Hospital where I go and volunteer there. And so in that way, we've, uh, I mean, there's a huge backlog of several hundred thousand. We just had a trip a month ago where we did over 500 basically site restoring surgeries in a week in a village called Maxinet, which is about 40 kilometers from Gondar. You know, we publicize before we're coming, 
And then we screen people and we only take like the worst of the, we start with the very worst cataracts and then go from there. So from that, we've probably done about now about over 700 of those kind of surgeries, which is, I think, a great number for us. We're one for certainly organizations that do more, but, you know, we're very fortunate and hopefully we're going to continue to do that. It's amazing. There's something that strikes me as very emotional about sight and the ability to see and the larger metaphor that looms over you guys going there to help people with their eyes. Can you share an experience where you helped someone see better or fixed an eye situation that could have led to blindness and how you kind of emotionally, like as a father, took it all in? Because I would would imagine there's a lot of stories and a lot of emotions that come with each patient. You know, we do these dramatic cataract surgeries where it's uh, it's it's really amazing as the patients get patched and these are patients who are blind. And then the morning after surgery, they all line up. It's kind of a ceremony. And then we go one by one and take off the patch. And again, these are people literally who are in the dark and then can see. And some of them spontaneously start dancing. Some of them just start talking and, you know, and it's really emotional. And, and that's, there, there's really nothing like that. But on uh, more to your question, there's uh a lot of kids there suffer from severe allergies when it's called vernal conjunctivitis. And we see it here in the West also, but there it's severe. I see a lot of kids with it. And the sad thing or good thing, it's very easily treatable just with basic antibiotic and steroid eye drops. And all you have to do is use the drops and they'll be fine. But the, if you don't use the drops, they'll, it causes progressive scarring of the cornea and then to the point where they can't see and some of it's even hard to reverse once it gets to that point. So, uh, and so when I'm there, I always see a bunch of kids with this and I give them all the drops we have and I try and give other people drops, you know, for when they run out. But uh, it's, it's very dramatic to help them with something so simple, but it's also, you know, very sad to see these five, 10 year old kids that are going blind that just for lack of uh, simple eye drops. And, you know, and the drops probably cost here, you know, 10 shekels or something like that. So, and as, uh, I mean, as of course with kids and as a father, you know, it's, it's very, it's very hard to see that. And it's something, you know, we really want to correct as much as we can. Yeah. And I would imagine in your community, you know, have they kind of rallied to help support the efforts? They have. It's interesting that, as I said, it's been mostly a grassroots uh, family effort for many years. And before COVID, I was there on average four times a year, but none of it was planned. It was more something would come up or I'd say to my boys, oh, you know, you have a day off school, you want to go to Ethiopia. <laughs> and then uh, and then we'd go. And, Some uh, kids just go to the beach. <laughs> right. No, and they were great. They always wanted to go. Wow. And then a couple of years ago, one of our closest friends said, oh, you know, their daughter would really like to go to Ethiopia with you. And she... I know she was 16 at the time, and, and we never thought of going to somebody else. We said, sure, you know. Again, it was mostly grassroots, but lately it's gotten, we've gotten a lot of momentum, and people are, you know, very interested in helping and contributing. And now almost every day we get an email from somebody, either locally or somebody in Israel or, or people even across the world that want to come and, and volunteer and help. And interesting that I'm talking to you this week, you know, the whole thing was just kind of our own initiative because we felt the need to do something. But this week, we've been trying to grow now into a real, an actual organization. So this week, we actually officially became an Amuta in Israel. Um, wow, Mazuta. <laughs> so we just got the approval. So now because we would like to 
mobilize and, and use all this support that we're feeling, all these people that want to help. So we're trying to do that now in a more organized way. We, my wife, who spent many years in e-commerce, you know, has built a website and Instagram page. Well, and, we'll put it in the show notes so yeah. people can uh, donate <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah, help that'd be great. So, Wow. So we feel we're on the cusp now of, of, you know, really growing this. And you have no staff, right? Because it's all you guys. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, we have no. Uh, now my wife, actually, who retired from her job after 20 years, she's, you know, officially going to be working for what we call Operation Ethiopia, you know, social media, marketing, fundraising, organizing. And, you know, wow. it's her initiative also that we became an official Amuta because wow. it's all been just uh through us, you know, fortunately, we've covered all our, until now, all our own flights and hotel. And unfortunately, the, the stuff we need, we've gotten donations. It, it's it's not that expensive, but, you know, obviously, the more it adds up, it adds up the more we have. And I, I was fortunate on one trip that I, I was actually, due to the activity I was doing later medically, I was fortunate to get invited when President Rivlin went to Ethiopia on the, the first presidential visit by any Israeli president to Ethiopia in 2018. He went along with many NGOs from Israel that work in uh, development. And so I was fortunate to be invited to go there. And there I, I met a woman named Sonia Dinner, who's head of a, has a foundation in Switzerland. And they're very active in Israel, but all over the world. We really connected and it's called the Deer Foundation. They've been very supportive of our activities there. And the last cataract campaign the first two campaigns we did, they funded that. And we also have a separate from eye care and the Gondor Jewish community. There's a lot of malnutrition, as you might imagine, made worse by COVID and then the war. But even without that, and I'm talking not that they're a little hungry, they're severely malnourished by the WHO criteria. So we, along with another organization in the U.S. called SSCJ, have been involved. We have a feeding program where we feed uh, over 500 kids under the age of five every day in the Jewish community. And again, the Deer Foundation has contributed to those efforts, too, for the feeding program. So we've been lucky to be able to, you know, raise some funds when we need it. It's incredible. Wow. I have two final questions. The first is, obviously, your kids have been raised magnificently by you and your wife and these life experiences, which are unparalleled. But if you can boil down all of the experience from 2014, when you first went to now, what's kind of the one core lesson that you hope sticks with them? Well, I think the two things we always tell our kids is that um, I think one of the big things is that if you're you know, willing to take a step a little bit out of your comfort zone, you never know where it will lead. You know, we really had a uh, I never, there was never on my radar to go to Ethiopia or go to do a volunteer trip. And we did it. And, and then, you know, in the beginning, we didn't say, okay, let's set up an eye care organization. But it just happened. I think if you're willing to take a step out of your zone and in, in anything in life, you, you never know where it can uh, where it can lead you. And then, you know, I'm proud of my kids, but also other people when, you know, they're exposed to this level of need and this level of suffering there and lacking things that, you know, it's really uh, moving. And it also shows them you can do something about it. And you don't need to, I always tell my kids and other people, you don't need anything fancy. Like we don't have, we don't, haven't had any fancy backing or organizations helping us. We don't have fancy set up when we go there. We're in the Shetak and you can really, make a difference in people's lives. You don't have to do even dramatic cataract surgery, just, you know, giving somebody an eye drop or glasses or even just 
talk, even when I had nothing to offer them, people appreciate just that you care about them. So, you know, I think that's a, a great lesson that, you know, you don't have to have this big organization that does these crazy things that have an effect on these people's lives. Absolutely. And what's one line or motto or line from the Torah or Talmud or a song that kind of sat with you in the back of your head throughout this entire journey when you needed it, when you didn't need it, when you didn't think you need it? What is one line that keeps you going? Well, I have to, full disclosure, I've heard your podcast. Oh, you like, know that question? No, there's a puzzle that I've always liked for the longest time, but I, I just put it here so I wouldn't misquote. Oh, wow. It really rings true. It's uh, from Micha, and it says, Ma Hashem doresh mimcha, ki imasot mishpat v'yavad chesed v'atsnei alechet imelohecha. What does Hashem want from you to do justice and to love kindness and also to walk humbly or modestly? So, you know, I feel like over there, you know, we're trying to do justice and kindness, but also important to stay modest, both to not get full of yourself, but also to, uh, you know, things that always go well there. And uh, for all your good intentions, we've had some big misses and failures. But, you know, I think if you always uh, keep a humble mind and you're persistent and keep coming back, then you can succeed at those things. And I know you will for many, many more years to come. Thank you so much. We'll put in the show notes the link to the organization. And uh, thank you so much for everything you do. And it was really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. After Morse left, I started thinking weirdly about my childhood, specifically about my family dining room table. I thought about the conversations that lived at that table, the feelings and images that tie together those thousands of dinners into a collective memory that frankly feels like the end of Toy Story 3. We never know what the love that surrounds the family dinner table will turn into. Not every family is going to establish a non-for-profit that provides eye care to thousands to maybe even tens of thousands of children and adults in Africa. That standard, the Hardstein standard, is out of reach to many of us. But there's a larger lesson, a more mystical truth, that the conversation and the moments that we shared at the dinner table can take us far, sometimes even to Africa, sometimes further than Africa, other times closer to home, both literally and figuratively. And that was what the interview left with me. I dreamt that night of my childhood home, the dinner table of my youth. None of us were there, just a kitchen, with the late afternoon sunlight illuminating the scene with the warmth that defined my childhood and ushered me into my life. Then I awoke, thousands of miles away in my new home in Tel Aviv, decades away from that life. I stared at the ceiling a bit, smiled gently to myself and returned to my dreams wishing to return to that table in my next dream. But in life, we can't go back. We can only go forward, they say. But that table and those memories are in front of me every day. And I'm pretty sure that Morris's kids can relate to that. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zayn. 
Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.